This episode of Fallout of Friday is brought to you by Benchmade Knives. They are headquartered in Oregon City, Oregon. Benchmade Knife Company has been manufacturing high-quality cutlery for over 30 years. They take great pride in the fact that they manufacture an heirloom product with the potential of being passed down from generation to generation with proper use and care. A lot of people don't know this, but each knife carries a limited lifetime warranty and free sharpening and maintenance throughout the life of the knife. So if you have an issue or it's dull, send it back in. They're going to send that thing back to you, shiny like a new penny. The company puts a strong emphasis on family values and tradition, encompassing the people and products that they create. They offer a wide spectrum of products. Hunting, tactical, outdoor, survival, everyday carry. I don't know what you're into, but I do know that they'll have something for you. They make it easy for you to dial in the knife that fits your lifestyle. Go check them out, BenchmadeKnives.com. Okay, I got the red All right, Mike, you know the rules. Oh, gosh, here we go. Well, usually we do a five-minute time cap, but we're just going to go ahead and take these where they go. <laughs> Variety of questions submitted by the listeners. Well, mostly most of these were drawn from the post that I put up saying that you were on your way here. So here we go. Hmm. Question number one, <laughs> our specialty, relationships. Okay. How do you stay married as a military first responder? I think you're both divorced, but what would it have taken to stay married to your wives? Thanks. <laughs> Uh, another career, um, uh, man. Ooh, that's good. Uh, communication, balance. Um, the typical answers that you see in relationships, but I think um, what I've seen most often fail is um, the lack of communication and what's about to transpire in that that career field. And then when that doesn't happen, what you see is people not meeting expectations, and then. Hey, you were supposed to be here because you're supposed to support me emotionally, and you're not here, so I slept with this dude. Well, that's not how it's supposed to work, but that's how basic human um, needs work. So, and I would say also, I mean, I can't speak for you, Mike, and your uh, ex-wife because I never met her. You need to make sure that you take the time to find the right person. You know, relationships all being different, there's an equal sign in between the two, but it's two parts of an equation. There's a lot of mistakes I think military make make younger in life. There's a reason there's predatory lenders just off the uh, most military bases, right? So you can get a 30% interest rate as a fucking E5 for your new Corvette that you don't need. Yes. And then take it to a strip club and marry a fucking dependapotamus. And if you don't know what that is, just go ahead and look it up. I'm not going to go <laughs> and break that down for people. You get like a pay bump. You do get a pay bump. Yeah, yeah, there actually is a financial benefit to getting married early. And I'm not saying that happened in either of our lives, but I have seen that happen in quite a few people's lives. Don't be in a rush. Take yeah. your time and find the right person. That is the advice that I would actually give myself, and I've been asked that question. If I could go back to my younger self, you know, what would I say? And one of the things would be get married later in life. I have yeah. such a better understanding of who I am now at 43, and I've, I've had these conversations with people, and I think they all resoundingly agree if they come from our background. The job will suffer last. Yes. Everything will implode. And if you're going to make that decision to go down that path, I'm not saying be selfish, but just consider the impact on other people. I don't mm -hmm. want to, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get married with the intention of getting divorced. Was it the fault of my occupation? No, it wasn't causal, but was it corollary to it? 
Yes, it absolutely was. So solid advice. That's a good one. Communication is is key. Yeah. Use some of the words that we made up on our uh, episode that Lots we did. Lots of wees and me's yeah. and I think you'll like this one. <laughs> if you both could go back in time and fight in any war, which would it be? Now that's the question. I'm going to add something to this. And you could take one weapon system with you. What would it be? Oh. <laughs> Cuz that adds a different flavor. Man, so oh. I know your history of warfare. Like yeah. we were talking about the Deuce which was, I mean, substantially different than the Oon. I'm talking about the the WWs, of course. I I would, pr- like, I would want to be like the SGG 44 is one of my favorite ones, but the Stammgewehr, but that was a German weapon system. So <laughs> let's not put myself in that predicament. I if it, let's just say I would do Mac V Sog, Vietnam RPD. So a cut barrel RPD, which they use drums, I think a hundred round drums. And there was a, I can't remember the variant of rounds, like five, was it five? No, it was a, I'll look that up. But it's the RPD with the short barrel was like a street sweeper. And they were able to fire it from the hip and just mow down the entire triple canopy. <laughs> that would be, I want to do that. Why, uh, not, I don't, I don't think enticing is the right word, but why would you land on the uh, Vietnam conflict? I, you know what? I I think. Look, I hate the jungle. I hate the heat with a passion. I, I hate it too. Hate, like, if you could find me like a moderate w- w- war and temperature wise, I'd be in that where I was in like board shorts or something. Yep. But I, I, I the reason I would choose that is because the historical importance of uh, the evolution of special operations with combined operations with Navy SEALs, Green Berets, um, and and even uh, Force Recon and and getting it on. And I think. Those remote remote fire bases, which I experienced in Afghanistan on a on a, a different scale, a scale that's not as aggressive and and as uh, epic. Um, that whole feeling of being in the Wild West, being remote and just doing your shit, being primal, is the best feeling I've ever had in, in warfare. Like doing direct direct action in itself is like a, a a feeling, but being remote and living austere off the grid, where you're dependent only on yourselves and your team. Man, those Mac V Saw guys, those they share those same experiences in their books, and I, I like that life. What war was the Red Baron in? Was that the Oon? Oh, that was uh, so. The Red Baron was. Is that like World War One? I, I want to say so. World War One was nineteen seventeen eighteen. I don't know if that was. I think that was earlier than that. I want to fight in the war where the Red Baron was. Really. And you I like wanna, pizza? No, because I want to be a pilot. And I want to fly in those biplanes and triplanes. The ones made of paper mache. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and the weapon I would bring back would probably be a flamethrower so I could fly up next to my enemy and I would flame them with my flamethrower. And I would want to have like a full satchel of grenades because those guys, when they were done with their air-to-air fighting, they would just drop shit out of the open canopy on top of people. So it was World War One, and yep. um, uh, Vaughn... Rich Chalfin. Most probably you know. Zero percent chance you said that correctly. <laughs> He's the ace of aces of war. But uh uh the first actual close air support mission ever conducted was in one of these planes where a dude flew from Italy to Libya and dropped a grenade and reported he flew back and he said he killed some dudes. Bullshit. That's what I would want to do, but I would want twin flamethrowers on the wingtips. Ooh. So it'd be a fire breathing dragon from the sky that nobody had seen. They would only see it once because your chances of survival in that would be one and done. But that'd be then. 
von Luftenberg or whatever his it would name. be. Yeah, he died in uh, 1918. So that's, that's what I would take. I would take a paper mache airplane in World War One with two flamethrowers. That's ballsy. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know we knew we were going to get taken out. That that might change mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to get taken out, but if I have to, if that's my only choice, flying that airplane. I love flying planes, so that would be my with choice. With flamethrowers, though. That's your weapon is flamethrowers? <sighs> yeah, man. That's crazy. They had wooden propellers. I mean, I would keep it pointed away from those. You have your pilot's license? Yeah. That's, man, damn. Your shit's, yeah, I need get my, I need just over 3,000 flight hours. Do you have your, um, do you have your um, sailing license? Your, no, your captain's license? No, I fucking hate the water. Do you? Yeah. You're a Navy SEAL. That's what you guys, you guys live in the water. Or no, is it because you've been around it yeah, so much? I've had like, enough. I don't need small like vessels this. or craft of any kind. But how much, let's be serious, how many waterborne operations and how much time did you spend in the water as a SEAL? Pre-9-11, quite a bit. Total number of waterborne operations, zero. Damn. I know. I've actually done a waterborne op in Iraq off the Euphrates. No. Does it count if you're riding on a swick? I was going to say, don't <laughs> say falling in a shit river is a waterborne operation. I took operation. 160th, flew us in. <laughs> we transferred into a swick boat. We drove down the Euphrates, and then we got off like like a foot on the land, hit a target, drove back, and did it reverse. It was I'm gonna, cool. I'm going to put asterisks next to waterborne <laughs> operation. You had some other shit in there, too. This one I was interested to uh, get your thoughts on. Would either of you be interested in ever returning to Afghanistan or Iraq in a non-combatant role? And how do you think that experience would make you feel in light of your past service there? So I went back to Iraq as a CIA guy. and um, I'm going to call that still a service role. Yeah. And it was fucking weird, though. Like, I, I actually got compromised by one of my guys that I had trained in Baghdad. <laughs> and I'm sitting in a Land Cruiser, and he... We make eye contact, and I look at my riding partner, who happened to be another dude that I operated with in that same unit. It was a, a, a the B two three, the commanders of the extremist force. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I went, I went, Dan, that's fucking whatever. You know, I was like, oh, that's our mood. He's like, what? probably was Muhammad. It was it was probably Muhammad, Ahmed or <laughs> Muhammad. So he looks left, and I and I look at him, and I'm like, fuck, he's coming. Is he walking towards me? He's like, he's walking towards you. I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. So run on the window. I'm like, bro, what's up? <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm in the CIA. I'm like, what? He's like, oh, I'm in Iraqi CIA. I'm like, oh, yeah, me me too. <laughs> me too, man. <laughs> and so, yeah, but um, I'm actually going back to Iraq. Really? Yes. I'm doing a documentary on the Iraqi counterterrorism force. No shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going back to Erbil. Um, we're flying into Erbil. But it's probably going to be uh, winter, so probably November, December time frame. You know they have snowboarding there. Yeah, it's it's epic. <laughs> I'm dead serious. There's videos of people believe, snowboarding in Erbil. In Erbil is like, dude, Erbil was awesome. I love Erbil. I didn't spend much time there. Pass through. Yeah, it's freaking awesome. I've only done ro one rotation in Erbil specific, but Erbil is amazing. And um, look, I want to tell a story of ICTF and their epic accomplishments with special operations, including. Um, every, tier one, the SIF, we bred those guys from scratch in Jordan. We fought a war with them. And then when we left, they fought the war by themselves. Well, they had assisting and advising, cast, close air support. But if it wasn't for those dudes, Missoula would be ISIS occupied. And they sacrificed their lives. I even raised money once for one of the dudes that was killed for his family um, and had the money shipped to his brother, who was a sergeant major in that unit, and gave him Western Union, like five Gs, just to help their family because he, he sacrificed his life. That whole story, um, we're going to go to Missoula, uh, tell the story of how they took Missoula. We're going to go to Erbil, talk about the uh, ISIS coming in, and we're going to go to Baghdad and talk to the chain of command, which includes the general uh, 
who used to be um, alive when uh, I was operating, um, but he passed away. But the the general and the country team actually gave us permission to go in there and do it with open arms and access. No shit. Which is, I'm taking the opportunity, man. How about Afghanistan? Would you ever have any interest in going back? That's a tough one. Like I, the most beautiful country I've ever been to is Afghanistan. Agree. It's I, on I've only done two or three rotations in Afghanistan. Um, uh, I did a nine-month-er there, and on that nine-month-er, I was in uh, next to H- the Hindu Kush, and traveled all over that area, which is beautiful, like Osama bin Laden's land, right? The other side of that, I was on in Kunduz, on the west side of the Hindu Kush, and had the same experience. It was epic. A lot of killing bad guys. Um, I don't know if I'd feel safe enough to be able to, to do that. Uh, not for me personally, but with people that I would go with yeah um i actually got invited to go to pakistan with surfer magazine to do a uh to do protection for a guy pre pre covid covid kind of jacked that up but we were gonna we were gonna actually go to afghanistan i got a buddy buddy who started the van van life movement foster huntington cool books on van life by the way um his grandfather was in the mountains of the hindu kush doing reckies during world war ii because they were they were surveying land for for stuff related to, to the war as an OSS guy. And we wanted to go retrace all all that stuff. I just don't think it's secure enough. I think we get fucking our heads chopped off. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't, I would actually, I would enjoy going back to both just to go back from a completely different optic. Afghanistan's got some sick wingsuit base jumps. I'd like to rip some of those mountains. Really? Yeah. And you wow. could go grenade in each hand. Yes. As you're ripping, I'm back, bitches, and drop those things. You'd have to pull pins before you yeah. jump, though. So, yeah, I don't know if they'd allow me to do that. Um, but I actually would be open to go back. And I think with the distance and you know that I have from my service, it wouldn't be any – you know what I mean? I think it actually would be – I think it would be a nice little ribbon on the book. You know, close it up, final chapter, so. put a ribbon and just – I mean, I definitely feel like I have moved past my experiences there. I mean, they largely made me – who I am and they help and they inform my thought process and opinion. But I think going back would be a nice closing yeah. loop on it. I, I think a, a, the, the Vietnam era vets who returned back to Vietnam and World War II have said that same thing, just yeah. closing the loop and just getting that feeling living, reliving this, some things, remembering some people and then just walking away. This one's straight in your wheelhouse. If you had to share the top three methods or ideas to encourage a culture of preparedness among civilians, what would those looks like? What would those look like? It seems more difficult than it should be. The three top, top three methods or ideas to encourage a culture of preparedness among civilians. Oh, okay. So let's go with top three. The first one is that um, disasters and catastrophes are equal opportunists. They don't care who you are. So um, the idea that a, a segment of the population is more prepared because uh, they're more rural or white people who are who are preppers like that idea removed from your head it doesn't care what you look like it will eat your lunch and destroy your life um number two is that the the idea that preparedness is paranoia is completely uh false paranoia is what you have when you're insecure and when you lack information you become more insecure which means you become more paranoid you replace that with understanding, technical understanding, um, tactical understanding, and then uh, develop a, a understanding of how things work in preparedness, 
you become less paranoid, more confident, and that could be part of your everyday life. And the last component is when you introduce this, it needs to be a lifestyle, but it doesn't need to be scary. I, I like to um, you know, Trojan horse these, these tactics and techniques into recreation because recreation, if you're uh, somebody who likes recreation like me, I like to overland because I like to get the fuck away from people. But if I'm overlanding <laughs> away from people, that means I need to be prepared for that worst con- case contingency. And by benefit, I am setting myself up for, for success for everything in between. So make it part of your recreational life as well. I don't think I can add to that. I mean, you are the the expert in this mm. in this realm. Why does this thing? Sometimes it makes noises at me, Mike, and it, I don't. It is, it is saying something. That, that doesn't is. sound like a good sound either. It's oh, like you yeah. fucked up. What's Mike's go-to road trip fast food stop, and what precisely does he order? I had oh, to ch- I had to cherry pick this Chick Fil A because you you film a lot on the road. Yes. Talking, which also, by the way, I think is illegal. You shouldn't text and drive or film videos and drive. I see you doing that shit I, I'm like, all the this time. I'm like, I grip a pistol and I'm, dri- <laughs> I'm driving my knees. I see you do that shit all the time. I'm like, God damn, he's doing it from his car again. Yeah, so go to Road Trip Fast Food and precisely what do you order? So my go-to is Chick-fil-A. And I hate being in places like, this place doesn't have a Chick-fil-A. There's one on the road. There's one right up the road. In Kalispell? Yeah. I will be there today. That's my. I'm going to that, that before the airport. <laughs> Um, my on the road is Chick-fil-A. It's a number one, which is a standard chicken sandwich with pickles, extra pickles with one mayonnaise packet and one mustard packet on top of that. So I get the little, little, mm. mm-hmm. it's like the, the, the moderate yum with a little spike of, of uh, mustard in between. And then I get a diet Coke and I make it large. And then when I'm with George, when we road trip, he likes to do this thing I call fry tax. He feels like since he's holding the bag, he could steal my fries. <laughs> and when you take one Chick-fil-A fry, which is the size of a waffle, yeah, um, it's like taking half the bag or half the box. It's of like fries. the size of this. Coaster. It is literally that. Yeah, delicious. It's about that size. Yep. Um, but that's my and and I used to do before COVID, I would get an ice cream cone, a small, because I don't I don't want to be obese, so I don't get a large. So I take a small and I would eat that before I go into the meal. But now they do. What's cups. the theory behind that? Well, the theory is I don't want it to melt, <laughs> but I want that goodness. Yep. That is uh, Chick Fil A, um, man. If I can get a Chick Fil A sponsorship, that would be great. Do they have a off menu selections like In and Out does? You know what I'm talking about? The hidden menu. They do, but it's not. It's everything that's on the menu, just different variations of that. Well, that's not exciting at all. It's not. This the breakfast is good for that too. I mean, they have good. If you haven't done biscuits chicken biscuits from chick-fil-a for breakfast please do that do they offer it all day long they they don't assholes detriment and they're not open on sundays <laughs> they which, are not open on sundays which bums me out but you know they they stick to their principles and, and i like that if you when you're heading up to the airport it goes straight down main street which is like two minutes from here by the way right it's like 15 minutes okay that's not right. but if you go straight up main street yeah on your left hand side near cabela's you're gonna see the filet of chicken really yeah. there's a cabela's here too yeah. Dude, we're not like well, I mean, fucking Antarctica. I, well, I went to a bookstore. This guy has 50,000 books, local bookstore. Where? And it was right downtown. It was like two minutes from here. Wow. There's one that's right here that's like called the Something Shelf, which is a, a nice bookstore. This place was a hole in the wall. And it was like hole in the wall. And it had the best inventory of books. I actually bought three books from there and super cool. Very interesting. It's making that noise at me again. Here we go. We got two more, and then I'll get you out of here to get to the airport. Mm-hmm. Chick-fil-A. That's what I'm thinking about now. 
You've both spoken emphatically about the military as a true meritocracy. I'm curious about Mike's Asian American experience, having left the military and navigating judgment from Joe Public. How does he handle overt and sometimes subtle discrimination and racism? Very well. I like it. <laughs> Look, if if I grew up in an Asian American home, if you have an Asian parent, especially a mom, you 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 live in the racist household in America because Asian families are the racist because they don't like any races besides Asians. And and then within the Asians, there's more racism. It's more racist in Asian culture than it is outside of Asian culture. Because Asians don't like, Koreans don't like Japanese. My mom hated my Japanese friends and would always make me secretly compete with them. But they're my friends, mom. No, 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 you beat them. That's like, mom, this isn't World War II. This is like, we're just hanging out, we're playing basketball. So... What I've realized is that component of culture in uh, Asian American culture has set us up for being very neutral in a racist uh, dispute between whites and blacks, which is weird in the first place, right? Not every black person is black. They're Haitian. They're um, they're from Jamaica. They're from um, a lot of black places. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out like African American black, but the same thing with the white people. There's like you know Norwegians, and if a if a dude comes off the boat and he's from Sweden and he's white, he's not a redneck Confederate racist asshole. He's a fucking Swedish dude. He doesn't know what the fuck. Like so, that whole thing is funny to Asian Americans, and so we play both sides of this. And what I realized as a kid is. They used to call me Wonder, like Wonder Bread, on the basketball court when I played basketball as a young kid growing up in Florida with all black kids because I went to all black schools. And I'm like I'm like the token white person, but I'm not even white. Like I look Asian and, and they're like confused. So they're like, you're fucking Wonder. But I could hang out with the black kids and then I could hang out with the white kids and because my dad was a redneck. So I, I think one, Asians are more resilient when it comes to racism. I also think we are, it's partly because we're the most oppressed people. I mean, everybody's oppressed, but Asian culture has some deeply rooted oppression, um, especially Koreans during the World War II by the Japanese, by the Chinese, um, it's, and even in the Korean War. So my thing is, look, we're all in this together. Um, despite your fucking race, if you want to align yourself with race, you're making a mistake because that's not how it works. Asian Americans don't give a fuck. This idea that, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, the big attacks on Asians. Uh, they they had the saying like, stop Asian hate. Yes, I have seen that. There's actually. a new fucking emoji on Instagram. Like that's going to help anything. It, I don't even see that as a systemic problem. What I see that is media taking one or two isolated incident instances and wanting to start social justice campaigns to build their analytics. And somebody's like, well, Mike, why aren't you standing up? Standing up against what? My whole fucking family's Asian. Not one of my Asian fam, like I'm actually Asian. Not one of my Asian actual family members had said, Mike, this is happening. We're being attacked. Not one. And I have a shit ton of Asian uh, family members and Asian American family members in the US. So again, I don't buy into the bullshit. I'm just happy to be the neutral race. The neutral race. Yeah, we are <laughs> because the you're the most racist. We, I, I can be. I'm allowed to do that. Asian Americans are given permission. What What do you think when we hear people talking about institutional racism in the United States or in policing? It's bullshit. It's all It's all contrived. It's all things. It's all talking points for people to build personas. 
uh, the reputation, their brand, their fucking media corporation. It's all contrived. It, racism, um, it, when, they, when, when people talk about anti-racism, that's the most comical shit to me. It, it has to do with biology. It's, we like to segregate in tribes. Now, d- does your tribe happen to segregate with like-looking people? Likely, yes. Mm-hmm. Does that make you racist? No. That means you're, you're tribal, just like everybody else on the fucking planet. You don't see white or black tribes in Africa assimilating with white people. They, they, that's not how it works. You don't see New, New Guinea tribes assimilating with fucking anybody. That's not how it works. So tribalism, which means segregation, um, is a natural component to biology. And just because we're doing that in, in different facets doesn't mean people are racist. Because I live in a neighborhood that happens to be the majority white doesn't mean I'm a fucking white racist asshole. It just means I live in a fucking neighborhood. I don't, and, and mostly I'm just paying attention to what I, what's going on in my life and not the demographics or analytics of everything that's going on. Racism, so funny. <laughs> Last question. In the theoretical but increasing likely situation that ARs and similar weapons are banned and mandatory buybacks are enacted, how would you guys handle that situation and would you voluntarily turn in your firearms? If not, how would you handle interaction with law enforcement if they came to your home for your firearms? So first, I'll placate to the question because he asked um, if – if you just played like it pretended like it happened one it will never happen because the the benefit of the united states of america is the decentralization of government with the federal government being uh dislocated from the states and their ability to uh enact power and assert dominance over a state that's why we have states in the first place by the way so we have a decentralized approach to governance in the first place which means that the government, one, they don't have the capacity and capability to come in in mass and do a um, serve warrants across every firearm owner in America, which is tens of millions. Right? I would love to know what organization people think would do that. Yeah, they, nobody has nobody has the ability to do that yeah. in manpower. It's a logistics problem more than more so than anything else. So never going to happen. Two, your local sheriff with your local uh, government likely is saying, "Fuck that, we're not doing that." And then three, if that happened to me, I'm not giving up shit. I'm just not giving up anything. You want to come knock on my door, we'll have the conversation. And I'll say, listen, this isn't happening. Now, if you decide it's going to happen, I won't go there because I don't want to um, incite uh, 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 violence or, or talk about violence. But it's just not going to happen. Yeah. There, there's few things in this world that I'm willing to fight for. Um, and most of them have to do with my freedom, liberties, and this country. Um, and that would be one of them. What do you think about the legislation that I just heard they're trying to push through when it comes to, uh, what was it, ghost guns? There was something else. First off, have you ever seen a ghost gun? So fucking dumb. Uh, well, and I look at I look so at dumb. I look at proposed legislation from the perspective, it usually will follow after an incident. And I will look at it from, and I'm not saying this is the correct way to view it, but I'll think to myself, is what's being proposed, would it have had any impact on what had happened or what is driving this legislation? And almost always the answer is fucking no. Yes, no. And so I don't understand. I don't understand the, ne- the the actual end state that they're looking for. I mean, it starts to make sense. Like, and I feel tinfoil hattish to say it, where it's just a mechanism of control. Yeah. Well, it's a tactic to also. Um, it's a tactic to appease their base, because it like you take a ghost gun. The other one was the brace, and yes. the other one was the background expa- expanded background checks. 
those three things are the most dumb legislative things that don't affect really gun owners in America, right? Um, the the brace is stupid. It's always been dumb. An SBR, uh, short barrel rifle, short barrel rifle is qual. Now you could have a brace, and they're saying that the brace can join with a pistol, which is they're talking about AR pistols, by the way. They're not talking about the pistols with the chassis. Um, that might fall into the same line of of legal um, stature. But the they're talking about the AR pistol that has a brace. Nobody one uses the brace as its intended use. So people say brace. The legislators actually think they're talking about the brace attached to the forearm, forearm. Yeah. but the, but so they're not using it in the first place. And then the ghost gun, I, I've looked at the statistics for how many ghost guns have been used in murders, and there's like zero statistics, which means it's more likely not an issue whatsoever. But it's a great talking point. It is a good talking point because you're like, there's there's domestic terrorists building ghost guns in their garage off the books. Uh, you should be worried about the tens if not hundreds of millions of pistols that are in circulation on the books that are in our inner cities that are killing uh, african-american kids yeah i agree with you i don't uh, i don't think it'll ever get to a place where this situation will play itself out and i think people worrying about this situation leads to a goddamn ammo shortage for me that i can't find yeah, hunting rounds <laughs> they're fucking up man well they're buying into that media narrative and that, yeah. that's the reaction they're looking for but, but look what it's done. It's, I mean, it's boosted gun sales. Uh, the, the last surge of gun sales was in two, 2016 with uh, Hillary uh, Clinton. And um, it, the surge happened because Clinton and Obama were on this on this bandwagon of gun control. And then that record was beat last year. And those record gun sales happened to be across the political line and spectrum. Got another one for you. We have time for some more. Hell Th yeah. This one's good. Would you rather have fingers for toes or toes for fingers? I would rather have uh, toes for fingers. Toes for fingers. No, no, no. Fing fingers for toes. Like toes. Yes, so you can climb shit. My, so climb yes. like a monkey. Yeah. And you just wear bigger shoes and you don't look weird. <laughs> I've seen guys with thumbs that look like toes. Fucking gross. All right. Let's dig into here and see what we have on old social media. There were some juicy ones. Yeah. But we went through many more than I thought we would actually relatively quickly. So you said you, before you go to the range two to three times a week, is it a flat range and what are you working on? Same for Mike. So what do you do when you go to the range? For myself, I work on fundamentals. Uh, I will spend a good amount of time coming from concealed, not working on anything crazy other than standing in front of a target, indexing my pistol and putting round on target and multiple you know, versions of that. So for me, it's almost always fundamentals and then sometimes I'll get out there and fuck around and blast steel uh, but I try to go well, in the recent months it's dwind uh, dwindled a little bit just due to the weather but I was going at least two times per week to the range but I'll test myself against kind of like the gold standards the El Prez hmm. uh, from the draw I have a range belt um, but I also have you know the concealed holster and to me almost everything comes back down to your mastery of the fundamentals this high speed Gucci gear isn't going to do you shit if you can't get your gun out of the holster yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I just focus on fundamentals. And uh, so I have a breakdown of fundamentals that's for gunfighting. It's grip, trigger control, stance and alignment for fundamentals of marksmanship. It's seven to nine fundamentals. Like when you practice and hone fundamentals, it's like going to the gym with a plan. If you're just going there and you're just throwing shit around, you're not developing an understanding of where you're at and where you need to be. So I use pro timers, scoreable targets, different drills, and I work these technical scripts. When I do self-defense draws off of, off of a uh, draw stroke, I typically like to use 
uh, a narr- narrative in my head because we never perceive threats uh, via audible sounds. We never hear pro timers, you know, fire, shoot, go. We, we have to make that decision on perception. So I develop a script in my head based on a narration of a scenario, and then I draw the pistol, and then I act. And act involves a technical drawing from, from a concealed and also, also lateral movement. So I practice a lot of movement moving off the X dynamically and pushing my body left or right. Um, and that, that advantage allows me to force the shooter, who's the bad guy, to push the gun um, and manipulate the gun across a plane. That in conjunction with stress, sometimes I'll do little mini stress shoots, like actually in uh, Washington State we did a stress shoot where we did work out for a five minutes through burpees, basic um, uh, functional fitness type exercises, elevating our heart rate, and then do those same drills, those fundamental drills like El Prez, do it with stress implemented. And then what you'll see is in a performance curve, like 70 to 80%, you're, you're faster. You're more accurate. Yep. And then if you want to really push it, you get yourself into that ninety percent BPM bandwidth and you'll start making mistakes. So and performance will start going down the It will start end. going falling <laughs> off the map. Thoughts on the ethics of military leaders bullying soldiers into getting the still voluntary COVID vaccine. Going so far as to offer four day weekends, limiting mileage on leave, and not allowing them to enter DFACS, which is a chow hall. What the fuck does DFACS stand for? Dining facility. facility. Yeah, I nailed that. Shit nailed right it. <laughs> or gyms without being able to provide a COVID card. Interesting. So, offering incentives for the military for Joes for lower enlisted has always been a thing. Back in the day, it used to be. I think it's called. S- I don't know why this is uh, snapping in my head, but I think it's called ARP or SRP. And it used to be like the commander would come out and say, "Hey, um, we're setting up allotments for you to donate part of your paycheck." couple bucks to your part of your paycheck per paycheck to these nonprofits. And if you did that, you would get a pass for four days. <laughs> so we had fucking Joe's going like, oh, dude, I'll, I'll do $10 a, a paycheck. So $10 Meanwhile, per Meanwhile, they're making like fucking $12 they're a paycheck. They're broke as shit. And, yeah. and they're getting that four-day pass. But you had some commanders that wouldn't even let you leave unless you did that. So when I got uh, anthrax, I was told, you are non-deployable without anthrax. So I was like, all right, hook it up because I'm going down range. Yeah. I'm killing bad guys. So uh, there's incentives. This whole this whole COVID thing um, is is kind of different to me because um, there's not enough data. The, the anthrax uh, vaccine, I don't know if we had a lot of data on the anthrax vaccine, but we know there was a potential threat down range. There's not a potential threat down range when you're isolated with the same dudes that you're going to war with who have always, all been COVID tested, right? If you're intermingling with indige, that's different. So um, there's, there's different parameters that are built around that. Most likely with me aligned with not enough fucking information. So I, I don't like bullying, period. I think it's a, a poor tactic uh, and poor way of, of driving people to do stuff. Um, but I think it's uh, despicable. I don't think that that should be happening. And, and, and I will tell you this. I don't even know if it's happening, but likely it is. Because that's just how the military rolls. I've seen it actually in a few places, yeah. and people have reached out to me about it. Yeah, again, I'm not a fan of the bullying at all. Um, I I put my anthrax vaccine in the garbage and had the corpsman sign it. Did you? I wish I did that. Hypothetically. I, did you have any adverse reactions? Well, I had two. I had a couple of them, and no reactions, but the rest of them, based on people's uh, feedback. You of, waved off on the full series? I, I, well, I waved off on the full, full series and had it signed off on. 
because I was like, fuck that. And then yeah. one of my 18 Deltas signed, up, signed off for me. What is one area of prep, uh, preparedness that people who identify as preppers may often overlook? Um, physical fitness is the most, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that by far, yeah. right? Um, guys, guys like to show how cool they are with their guns, their kit, because it displays well. Uh, I think the biggest um, issue, and, and this is going to be something that we're going to concentrate at Philcraft, because we actually have the content and the apparatus for, for teaching uh, through Philcraft Survival Fit on IG. I, I think... Um, what I see, like, let me give you an example. In Washington, I did a five minute, a five minutes of exercise, which puts you, for the in shape person, in about five minutes, it puts you in about a seventy percent bandwidth, where you should be performing optimally. So what you'll see is more accurate scores technically yep. than you would see sitting idle at a seventy beats per minute. So we accelerate the performance, but then people start who are not in shape start falling off. So what the diagnostic is is you determine, you take 10 people, you get the same interaction physically, which is the same physical stress, you put them in a technical scenario, and then you see the baseline of the person who's fit as it correlates with their technical uh, output, their score. So you got a score and then their uh, BPM. So if you got a guy who's 170 beats per minute and he's scoring perfect, but then you got a guy who's out of shape, or not, don't even look at the shape, Look at the person and they go, they're 190 beats per minute, which means that they're a, a higher threshold for mistakes because they're hitting the red line and they have a score of 60. Then the correlation is uh, the fitter you are, the more likely you are to be technically proficient at what you're doing. So you take that and you take 10 people and five of them are out of shape. That's what I'm seeing on, on, on civilian courses. But I'm seeing the sexiest guns, yep. the coolest belts, but uh, but people who aren't necessarily like you look at them and you're like that's an obese person. They just don't have cardiovascular baselines. Yeah, they don't have the ability to. Uh, um, they don't even understand breathing tactics, and so they're getting overwhelmed. I mean, half of the group that I did a stress shoot with in Washington was was laughing and joking and saying "fuck this, this is bullshit." But what I told them after the fact in the AER because I'm never a dick about it uh, because it's their money. Uh, which a lot of tactical companies don't realize. They, they chew them out like they're fucking Joes. I say, guys, look, you paid to come here to do this. The reason you're laughing is because that's a neuro neurological response to you being overwhelmed physiologically. You're out of shape. You suck. And so what happens is you start doing dumb shit. You start laughing. You start joking. You say, fuck this. And then your resilience starts diminishing and you fucking quit. All that means is you're going to die in a gunfight. Yeah, because and then and so I don't give a fuck what you do from from here on out. But let me tell you what I'm not going to do is stroke your ego and tell you you're the best. A lot of you guys need to get not fat and you need to start working on your cardiovascular fitness. That That's everybody, by the way, but more so the guys who suck the worst. And if you sucked, go home and learn that lesson and fucking be better. Yeah, if you uh, disregard the old combat chassis, the human body, it's going to fall apart on you. And you're going to die with the most sexy gun still in its fucking holster. It's not the look. It, definitely not. Gravy Seals, Meal Team Six, the Green Beignets. I've seen a couple in my they're life. They're out there, dude. Which is rare. The fucking thick blue line. But I've seen them. They're, they're, they're out there, dude. Thick and it's not acceptable. Oh. Last question. Thoughts on the diversity officer for SOCOM? Um, so they, he resigned. The guy resigned because... Yeah. Just, I guess more would be the thoughts on the principle of having that person in place in the first place. Yeah. Diversity in... So one... Um, 
Sure. After we've selected, right? So part of the problem I had with SOCOM's diversity officers, they were looking at diversification pre-selection, right? So one, I think diversification for Green Berets and Special Forces, but also other services is, is important. So um, if I go out and I recruit from the infantry, if I recruit from the infantry, 98% of the infantry is white. So if, if you want diversity, like third group used to be Africa. When I went through the Q course, I knew I was going to third group. So I was a, I spoke Korean or I could read and write Korean. They sent me to French. So I was a French speaking Korean in an African based unit that was deploying to Afghanistan. I mean, that totally didn't make sense to me. Totally. So they didn't even have a reference for who the fuck I was, right? They don't go, hey, let's take all these Hispanic dudes who have a, a Spanish background, who have Latino culture ingrained in them, and send them to seventh group to, to focus on the AOR area of operation in South America. That's smart tactics. What I think um, this person was being uh, put in position for was creating diversification, not setting up the, the, the success of diversification. Meaning, I agree with you. Meaning saying, hey, where are my Latino dudes at? Okay, you're over here. Where the fuck are my Asian Americans at? Okay, well, let's let's start recruiting from those pools of dudes and saying, hey, there's this whole world that's called the Green Berets where you can come and operate in your culture and then build rapport better because you understand that culture. That's diversification the right way. Diversification and trying to um, uh, intently and purposefully um, without even looking at the selection class or the selection rate, bullshit. I, I, I think it's, and that dude who was doing it was um, political, toxic, uh, a, a whole bunch of bad things, which is why I put him on blast and I'm glad he got, he fucking resigned. Fuck him. That's the best ending ever. Yeah, I think so. Let's get you if we chug this bottle of whiskey, that'd be. <laughs> well, you, well, we got to get you to Chick fil A before that. <laughs> All right, homie, thank you. Thank you, man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to tune in, whether you're listening on an audio-only platform or you're watching on YouTube. I appreciate that you take the time every week to tune in. People ask me a lot, what can they do to help me spread the word? And the answer is actually embedded in the question. The biggest thing you guys can do to help me if you enjoy the podcast and you think it would be helpful to others is subscribe and Share it with other people. And if you have the time, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating and a review. If you think the podcast sucks, tell me it sucks and leave a zero-star review or the lowest stars possible. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, you can go to clearedhotpodcast.com. And there is a contact me button right there, which will land in my inbox. And the last thing, if people are interested in helping out, what you can do is fly the old flag. And by that, I don't mean an actual flag because I don't have any of those. I'm talking about t-shirts or sweatshirts or hats, whatever it may be. Again, clearedhotpodcast.com. Click on the shop tab and hopefully something in there looks like it would be an item you would like to wear around town. And then you can tell people what it is when they ask you. But that is it. The biggest thing I can say is thank you. I truly appreciate it. And until next time, see you.